coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Happy Tuesday to you. As we go to uh, recording for today's show, we get word that a jury has found Donald Trump liable, according to the Associated Press, for sexually abusing advice columnist E. Jean Carroll back in 1996, awarding her $5 million. Good luck getting money out of him. Awarding her $5 million in a judgment that could haunt the former president as he campaigns to regain the White House. Again, this coming from the Associated Press. The verdict announced in a federal courtroom in New York City on the first day of jury deliberations. Jurors rejected Carroll's claims that she was raped, but found Trump liable for sexually assaulting her. U.S. District Judge Lewis A. Kaplan read instructions uh, on the law to the nine-person jury before the panel began discussing Carroll's allegations of battery and defamation shortly before noon today. They came out in less than three hours with their verdict. Now, Kaplan, by the way, let me walk you through some of this, instructed the jurors to decide to answer the first question uh, on the verdict form, whether they believe that Donald Trump at least more than 50% chance that Donald Trump raped E. Jean Carroll inside a store dressing room. Obviously, they didn't get to a, a positive on that, so they moved on to the next question. The jurors were then tasked to decide if Trump subjected her to lesser forms of assault involving sexual contact without her consent or forcible touching to degrade her or gratify his sexual desire. They obviously answered yes on that. Defamation claims stemming from a statement Trump made on social media last October. Oh, look, the guy can't keep his mouth shut or his thumb still, and it finally came back to bite him in the ass. Kaplan said jurors were to be guided by a higher legal standard, clear and convincing evidence. He told them they would have to agree it was highly probable that Trump's statement was false and was made maliciously with deliberate intent to injure or out of hatred or ill will with reckless disregard for Carol's rights. Again, earlier this afternoon, jurors awarded E. Jean Carroll $5 million in a judgment against Donald Trump, finding him guilty, liable that is, for sexually abusing and defaming Carol. Honestly, you have to think back to the hot mic moment, the grabber by the hot tape, where Donald Trump's own words came back to haunt him because they sounded eerily similar to what E. Jean Carroll alleges he did to her. In this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. True with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what, it's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been <laughs> largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. Do you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. That's a little bit of a deposition that took place back in October of 2022 at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's home turf. That's E. Jean Carroll's attorney, Roberta Kaplan, asking him questions and him inexplicably being able to be heard clearly as he's putting his foot in his mouth. He also couldn't identify E. Jean Carroll 
versus an ex-wife in a photograph. It's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Carol. Oh, is that? The oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? And the person, the woman on the right is your then wife, I don't Ivana? know. This was the picture. Ivana. I assume that's John Johnson. Is that Carol? Because it's very blurry. The reason it's important to point out that he mistook E. Jean Carroll in the photo with his ex-wife is because his claim all along, one of his claims anyway, was that E. Jean Carroll wasn't even his type, which is disgusting and despicable in and of itself for a defense. In fact, attorney Roberta Kaplan used that in her closing argument to the jurors. What did Mr. Trump do after I showed him that photograph? She asked the jury of six men and three women. He looked at it for a moment and then completely unprompted by me, he said, it's Marla. She was exactly his type, Roberta Kaplan said. Donald's reaction on Truth Social about an hour and a half ago, as you hear this, I have... All caps. I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. This verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time, he said. He also did an interview on Fox Digital where he immediately said that he will appeal, telling Fox Digital, this verdict is a disgrace. It's a continuation of the greatest political witch hunt in history. We'll appeal. We got treated very badly by the Clinton-appointed judge, and she is a Clinton person. Speaking of E. Jean Carroll, is a Clinton person, too, adding, I have no idea who this woman is. And so there you have it, with a jury deliberating for a shade under three hours after weeks of testimony and evidence. But, by the way, without much of a defense, Trump himself didn't take the stand. Anyway, after that jury deliberated for a shade under three hours, E. Jean Carroll has been awarded $5 million. And the party of family values now has a proven sexual abuser at the head of their party. And still the leading candidate to win the 2024 nomination to be their party's candidate for president of these United States. That's where we are. The, the right, their mouthpieces, their cable news channels, their columnists, their pundits, talk radio will all tell us how this is just another piece of the witch hunt. It's the left. It's the Democrats trying to take a good man down. See, I can't even say that without chuckling. Trying to take a good man down. Good man. Donald Trump's a good man. He's been nothing but a good man, right? They, of course, will lay no blame at his feet. They will not talk about the hot mic moment and how his own words damned him in this sentence. They will instead just make this political. They're just trying to take down the leader of the Republican Party for political purposes. Not because E. Jean Carroll believes she was raped and proved to a jury that she was at the very least sexually assaulted and then defamed after the fact. Now, they want to make this more about 
the political ramifications. And whose fault is that anyway? Whose fault is it that he is still politically relevant? Huh? It's not Trump derangement syndrome on the left. He's still the leader of the GOP. He's still the presumptive 2024 nominee. And the left has no role in that, has no say in that. I mentioned this so many times. In fact, who was I talking to here a few weeks ago when I said, we're like the person in the passenger seat telling the driver who says that they need to pee, hey, there's an off-ramp if you need to stop and go to the bathroom. Nope, going to keep going. But you said you had to, nope, nope, ignore that exit. You point out another exit to them. No, 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 I'm just going to keep going. But you said you had to go to the bathroom. No, I'm just going to keep driving. That's what the GOP has done. They've just kept on driving with Trump as their engine, with Trump propelling them. Two impeachments, both of them very valid. The allegations, very valid. Just because a Republican-led Senate didn't want to touch it for political reasons, if we're being honest, we want to talk about political ramifications. I mean, come on. Two impeachments, January 6th, for crying out loud, an insurrection where he was going to let an angry mob, he foamed to the mouth, get to Vice President Pence to keep him from doing his constitutionally sworn duty, conspired to have fake electors in place in battleground states to overturn election results. I mean, that's the big off-ramp, the huge off-ramp. He had already lost. He was trying to undo that loss. Republicans, even Lindsey Graham, remember that day? I'm out. That, that, that's it. I've had enough. I'm out. And then days later, back in Mar-a-Logo, licking the boots. Kevin McCarthy on January 6th, that evening himself, talking about how culpable Donald Trump was for what happened on January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. Days later, he too, Mar-a-Lago. I mean, dare I say it, those of us who have been telling you all this time about Donald Trump and all of his shortcomings, from primary season in the 2016 cycle to now, we've been telling y'all on the right, you're putting your money on the wrong horse. Kentucky Derby, how about that? Just finished, and now I'm going to use a horse racing analogy. By putting your money on a jackass. A deeply flawed jackass. We were trying to tell y'all this. Uh, I mean, congratulations, you got your 6-3 Supreme Court. You got Roe v. Wade overturned. God only knows how much more damage this Supreme Court can and likely will do unless a second Biden term maybe gets us to some court packing, at which point maybe then Joe Biden will do the damnedest and decide, I don't give a shit. I'm going to do what needs to be done. Pack the court. I I don't know. I don't know. I just know that the left, and even a lot on the right, the Lincoln Project, the never-Trump Republicans have been trying like crazy to warn the Republican Party. You picked the wrong horse. That's a jackass. It, it might win a sprint, but it's not going to win the whole race for you. It's going to destroy the entire track. 
It's gonna shit all over the thing. And you're gonna wind up with a lot of it in your hooves. Man, am I good with the analogies today or what? I am just on a roll. Heavens to Betsy. <laughs> Don't worry, though. I'm not expecting anybody on the right to go, oh, you know what? They were right. Guys, you were right. This is awful. We should have listened to you all this time. No, they're going to tell us this is just another political witch hunt. Just trying to take a good man down with a straight face. They say this stuff. <laughs> and and there's a contingent in this country that believes it. Give them all the smoke in the world. Their eyes could just be bloodshot from all the smoke. They don't believe there's any fire around. Hacking, fanning, wheezing, coughing. <laughs> what? What? What fire? Morons. You got what you deserved, and so did he today. Back after this on The Ron Show. Welcome back to The Ron Show Tuesday. Show note, the second half of the show today. Y'all know I like taking half days. I'm taking a half day on this show. But I think it's a cool half day because I'm going to give you Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, speaking at Georgia Tech over the weekend. I'm going to give you his commencement speech. How cool is that? You didn't even have to go to Georgia Tech to hear this. You didn't have to send a kid through Georgia Tech to see to hear this. I'm giving it to you for free. I literally just saved you tens, if not more than $100,000 in tuition to get to hear Anthony Blinken's commencement speech at Georgia Tech. You're welcome. We were just talking uh, last segment uh, on the heels of the E. Jean Carroll verdict. Uh, Carroll awarded $5 million in damages for Trump sexually assaulting and defaming her. At least that's what the jury found. I kind of feel like I need to point this out too. It's almost as if the lasting effects of Donald Trump aren't just going to be negative for the entire country. They're definitely, definitely negative within the GOP. We're seeing this right now in Georgia. The AJC reporting. Headline, far-right faction pushes to oust traitors from the Georgia GOP. Greg Bluestein reporting on this where he says, a far-right faction that has gained clout in the Georgia GOP, even while Brian Kemp is still the governor of this state, the erstwhile, somewhat level-headed, Republican leader of the state GOP, who, by the way, isn't going to the state GOP convention. Now, anyway, this far-right faction in the Georgia GOP wants to give the state party new powers to block candidates from qualifying to run as Republicans if they're deemed to be insufficiently conservative. A litmus test, a.k.a. a traitor, that very word used, traitor, to the party. Greg Bluestein continues, the rule change is being championed by leaders of the Georgia Republican Assembly, a conservative faction that has vilified, uh, here we go, Governor Brian Kemp, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and other Republicans who rejected Donald Trump's demands to illegally overturn his election defeat. Under the proposed rule change, the Georgia GOP convention could vote to prevent a political candidate from qualifying to run as a Republican in the next election giving the state party's 1,500 or so delegates authority to pick favorites in top races. This quote, If the candidate has shown himself to be a traitor to the principle of the party, then the party can vote to exclude him from qualifying at the next election. That's Nathaniel Darnell, a GRA leader, speaking during a recent address 
to the state constitution party. Is this perhaps, maybe at the state level anyway, the beginning of that Republican civil war we've been hearing about so much from moderate and liberals on the left who just keep telling us, just you wait, that Republican party is going to come a crumbling. Personally, I mean, yes, I'm for this. I'm very much for this. I think there's the Lincoln Party Republicans, the Liz Cheney Republican types, the the Ben Sasses of the world that you don't agree with on 98.9% of anything that comes up for discussion politically and ideologically. But you might be able to find some common ground with them to at least meet, if not in the middle, they like 75% of the way. (laughs) When they're in power, you have to take what you can get, right? That's what I say all the time about uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia. You can dislike Joe Manchin all you want. He votes with Donald Trump, I mean, with uh, Joe Biden like 85, 89% of the time. Do you want 89% of what you can get, or do you want 0% of the Republican Senate candidate in West Virginia? Who? Why is the Senate candidate not winning in West Virginia, right? I'm for the split, not just because, oh, it's good for the Democratic Party. You no, know, I'm for the split because I kind of think that that might get this country closer to that four-party system that is closer to what the American people deserve as opposed to the two-party system or even a three-party system? At the end of the day, do you think that the MAGA party and the old guard Republican party are going to find enough common ground together to affect change while the Democrats, who couldn't beat a unified Republican party often enough, I get it. Gerrymandering, state lines, Senate, imbalance, capping the House. I, I get it. The electoral college. Yeah, no, absolutely true. Democrats ain't been able to do anything about it. And that's that's on us as voters, too. We don't show up in midterms. We fell about 78,000 votes shy in three swing states in 2016, and that cost us dearly. People say, oh, it's fun to watch the Republican Party implode. Uh, first of all, if this is the implosion of the Republican Party, why are Democrats unable to do better than 50 votes in the Senate and the vice president in a tiebreaker and don't even have the House? Uh, again, I get it. Gerrymandering, state lines. I, I get it. Supreme Court, blah, 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 blah. I'm just saying, be careful what you wish for. Because so far, you would think, given everything that's happened since Donald Trump's been elected, you would think that everything that has happened since then would lead us into an era of moderate liberalism in this country, unfettered, unabated. And right now, Joe Biden is running for re-election in 2024, and he's polling at less than 42% in approval. And some polls show that he's trailing a man who was just found liable of sexual assault and defaming a woman. And there's that other faction on the left that turns to the MAGA friends, neighbors. God, please tell me you're not dating one. And, and, and says, see, is this going to be enough? Y'all, those folks are irredeemable. Don't even bother. They're, they're, they're like Spock in that tube after the Wrath of Khan or at the end of that Wrath of Khan movie. No, don't don't go in there. You'll flood the whole chamber. He's he's already gone. <laughs> Isn't that what they said? That's that's what McCoy said. He's already gone. Or was it Scotty? I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and get into a trick discussion. I'm just saying. Don't bother. They're they're irredeemable. 
I have people that I've known, like from Louisiana, I think fondly of as friends from back in the day. We do not talk politics because on that level, it it, it hurts me to say that, but they're irredeemable. They're never, you're never going to get that mea culpa. You're never going to see that on social media. You're never going to hear them say it. You're not going to get that Lindsey Graham speech on the floor <laughs> that we got on January 6th from your bag of friend or neighbor or relative. You're not going to get that from them. I mean, at least we got it from Lindsey Graham. We got it from Kevin McCarthy for just a minute before they pivoted and ran right back to Mar-a-Lago to lick the boots. You're not going to get that from your Trump fanatic friend, neighbor, relative, coworker. This is not going to happen. All right. Anthony Blinken spoke at Georgia Tech's commencement over the weekend. We have that next. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken spent a couple of days in Atlanta over the weekend and made the rounds. His uh, visit centered around Atlanta's status as an international hub for global health, commerce, and diversity, according to Georgia Public Broadcasting. He uh, spent Friday and Saturday in Atlanta to meet with the CDC and Mayor Andre Dickens, local HBCU leaders, met staff from the Atlanta Passport Agency, Diplomatic Securities Residence Office, and gave the undergraduate commencement address at Georgia Tech. And you get to hear that. You're welcome. You didn't have to pay tech tuition. You didn't have to pay to send your kid to tech to hear this commencement speech. Nope. I'm giving it to you free of charge. Here we go. Class of 2023, congratulations. You made it. You got out. I want to say a special thanks right from the start to Zaria Redhead. Wasn't she extraordinary? Sorry. But each of you, each of you has survived one of the most rigorous academic programs on this planet. You've endured hikes up Freshman Hill. You have powered through all-nighters with, as I've already heard, a little help from Waffle House. You'll never again have to wear a rat cap, unless you want to. Now, as America's chief diplomat, a key part of my job is trying to resolve the world's most intractable conflicts in places like Georgia. Yellow jackets or bulldogs? Atlanta or Athens? And look, to be a trusted go-between in conflicts like these, you can't pick a side. Even when, deep down, you know that one is right. But experienced diplomats like me know how to send the subtle signals that let people know where they stand. And so, esteemed graduates, I ask you, what's the good word? This morning's ceremony got tech legend Harrison Butker, whose field goals have twice won the Lombardi Trophy for the Chiefs. You got stuck with the guy whose last trophy came in youth soccer for participation. So, I want to make it up to you. That is why I am proud to announce that today I am nominating one of Tech's own, renowned physicist, cellist, social media influencer, 
George P. Burdell as America's next ambassador to France. He's earned it. Now, to get down to business. Before we get to where you're headed, let's just take a moment to reflect on where you've come from. Or better said, who you've come from. The people, as you heard the president say, who helped get you to this day, who always believed in you, even when you were a rambling wreck. The people who put their heads down so that you could lift yours up. Moms and dads, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, grandparents, best friends. Many of them are here today cheering you on. And those who can't be are part of who you are. This is their day too. So let's give them a big round of applause. Class of 2023, I have to tell you, I remember almost nothing about what the commencement speaker said at my college graduation. Not because it was a terrible speech, it wasn't. Or because it was a long time ago, it was. But because my mind was elsewhere. And I suspect that may be the case for many, if not most of you today. Graduation is one of those moments when your past, your present, your future, all seem to be converging at once. You feel rightly immensely proud of what you've achieved. And at the same time, maybe a little bit anxious or even outright terrified about what you'll do next. It's a time when the question of who you are and who you'll become looms large. I can tell you from experience, it's a question you'll probably be grappling with for years to come. So I thought the most useful thing that I could do today is to share a few tips from my own experience about how to navigate the periods of uncertainty that lie ahead. First, get comfortable with what you don't know. Two decades ago, I was hired as the staff director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. A big part of that job was fielding questions from senators, especially the chairman of the committee, a guy named Joe Biden, like how much aid we'd given a foreign country over the last decade, or how long judges served on their Supreme Court. A lot of the time, I didn't have the answer. Now, when you're asked a question you don't know, especially by your boss, it's easy to feel like everyone will realize you're an imposter. You might be tempted to wing it, to fake it till you make it. Don't do it. Memorize this answer instead. I don't know, but I'll find out. I still use this line, including in cabinet meetings with my boss, who's now President Biden. Here's why. If you give your boss bad information, because you're too embarrassed to admit that you don't know, you're on the way to losing their confidence. It's getting the right answer that matters, even if it takes some time to find it. That's important when you're the one in charge too, because acknowledging that there are things that you don't know signals to your team that they can also be honest with you. And it's also okay not to have the answers to the big questions, like what you're gonna do with your life, 
Everyone struggles with those. Now, you probably wouldn't know that from people's Instagram or LinkedIn accounts, where everyone seems to be crushing it. But remember, these are the kind of real-world versions of George P. Burdell. They're highlight reels with the toughest parts edited out. You never know what's going on in someone else's life. So, err on the side of grace. And don't compare their outsides to your insides. Focus on your own journey. Be patient with yourself. You'll get there. You just may need to wander a little bit first. Wandering is how Buckminster Fuller, one of our nation's greatest innovators, found his way. He was born in 1898. He failed out of Harvard twice. He joined the Navy. He started a family. He had a successful construction company. Then his world unraveled. He lost his three-year-old daughter to a terrible illness. Soon after that, he lost his job. Broke, sad, depressed. He considered two paths. Either he would take his own life or he would fully dedicate himself to serving humanity. Bucky chose life, but he had no idea where to direct his new sense of purpose. He spent two years rigorously observing the world around him, driven by the belief that nature's patterns would teach him how to use technology to improve people's lives. His first discovery was inspired by the triangular structures of spider webs and the branches of trees, which led to his realization that the right combination of tension and compression could make light, flexible structures incredibly strong. He called the principle tensegrity and designed an entire home based on it, whose lightweight parts could fit into a single shipping container. It was Bucky's answer to affordable and sustainable housing. And when Fortune magazine put his prototype on its cover, he received 30,000 unsolicited offers. Bucky led a wildly prolific life. He earned 25 patents in everything from cartography to car design, all focused on serving humanity. To this day, his designs are all around us. I was in Montreal recently, and we had a town hall at the U.S. Pavilion from the 1967 World Expo, a geodesic dome that's over 20 stories high. Bucky designed it. And the mace that Vice Provost Jacobs carried when leading you out on the field today, its design is based on Bucky's principle of tensegrity. So, get comfortable with not having answers. The search for them will lead you to your most important discoveries. Second, know what you do know, the principles that guide you, no matter what changes around you. Jimmy Carter, of course, spent one of his undergraduate years here at Tech, and he later said that the only way he could get out was by getting elected president and then picking up an honorary degree. He had a beautiful saying for our core beliefs, which came from his high school teacher. We must adjust to changing times and still hold unchanging principles. That's true for individuals. It's true for nations. As President Biden often says, we're at an inflection point when we face defining questions about the future that we want and how to get there, including when it comes to technology. The unprecedented leaps in AI and biotech and quantum computing and other fields that you've studied are already having a profound effect on the lives that we live, how we live, how we learn, how we work. It can be difficult to keep up, no matter what field you're working in. At the State Department, 
I've realized that I need scientists and technologists in the room just to tell me whether I need scientists and technologists in the room. But as developments in recent years have made clear, technology, like any other field, is not inherently good or bad. This fundamental truth is baked into Georgia Tech's mission statement, which commits this institution to develop leaders who advance technology and improve the human condition. In other words, whether technology makes our societies more or less equitable, whether it promotes or represses human rights, whether it brings us together or drives us apart, that will come down in no small part to what you do. That's the story of Joy Volomini, tech class of 2012. From the moment she started building websites in high school, she knew that she wanted to use her programming skills to serve other people. But Joy spent almost all of her time coding and little time talking to the people who were using what she made. That changed during her junior year at Tech when she went to Ethiopia to help the Carter Center build an app to track neglected diseases. That experience pushed Joy to get out into communities where she could interact with people who were using the technology that she was designing. And that contact raised questions, questions she hadn't grappled with before, like how seemingly minor choices in language could make people feel excluded, or how to engage people in designing the tools that were intended to serve them. Joy found a cardinal direction on her internal compass. Always, always see the people behind the code. Years later, she was designing an app that could superimpose the faces of other people, like one of her heroes, tennis legend Serena Williams, on top of her own. But the software that Joy was using couldn't detect her face. It only worked if she covered her skin, which was black, with a white mask. She tried out other facial recognition programs. Same result. So she peeled back the code and found the problem. The programs were trained on databases made up mostly of the faces of white men. The result was an algorithm that literally, literally couldn't see Joy or many other black women. But Joy refused to stay unseen. She took the brave step of calling out the facial recognition software made by big tech companies and the harms that algorithms could cause. She published research. She wrote op-eds. She testified before Congress. She created museum exhibits. She convinced companies to sign on to a pledge limiting their use of facial recognition software and formed a group of coders to fight for greater equity and accountability in the AI that she continues to lead to this day. So like Joy, each of you will have to find points on your compass. Let me share one of my own, which has a lot in common with Joy's. Never lose sight of the people, the real people, on the other side of your decisions. A great journalist from many years ago, Edward R. Murrow, once told a group of American diplomats that the most crucial connection in international relations is made in the last three feet by one person talking to another. The more layers there are between us and the people whose lives are affected by our actions, whether those layers are screens or miles or ideological bubbles, the easier it is to, to stop seeing the connections that we can only make in those last three feet. And the easier it is to start seeing people as numbers or statistics, the other, rather than as fellow human beings. Around the dinner table, when I was growing up, I heard a lot about our country, 
as a beacon of hope. My grandfather came to the United States after fleeing pogroms in Russia. My stepmom found refuge here after fleeing the communist regime in Hungary. And my stepdad was rescued by American GIs after enduring the horrors of the Holocaust. So to this day, when I meet with refugees, whether they're Ukrainians uprooted by Russia's brutal invasion, or Nicaraguans who escaped their country's repressive regime, or the Syrian and Afghan employees that I met earlier today, working here in Atlanta at the Refuge Coffee Shop, I see my own family in their shoes. These meetings are also a chance to hear directly from the men, the women, the children, whose fates are too often decided without their voices, in air-conditioned conference rooms, in policy memos, in spreadsheets. Now, some people believe that when it comes to shaping our policies, empathy clouds our judgment rather than clarifies it. And that if we want to advance the interests of the American people, we have to worry less about the hardships and injustices faced by people beyond our borders. I've never seen it that way. In fact, when I look at the programs that continue to make our country a beacon of hope and strengthen our standing in the world, they almost always are ones where we've remembered to see ourselves and others. Programs like the President's Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, which has saved more than 25 million lives and counting in the 20 years since President George W. Bush created it. Programs like the international exchanges that have fostered ties between generations of students, professors, leaders from the United States and other countries, including President Cabrera. And I'm so delighted that the Fulbright program can take responsibility uh, and credit for you being here, not to mention your marriage. Programs like our sustained efforts to promote the human rights of women and girls and LGBTQI people around the globe. It's up close in those last three feet. That's where we remember that the true measure of any policy or any app or any startup or any organization, anything else that we do is the tangible difference it makes in the lives of our fellow human beings. Going to take a quick break and come back with the last little bit of Anthony Blinken's commencement speech from over the weekend at Georgia Tech's undergraduate after this on The Ron Show. Final segment for The Ron Show on Tuesday, of course, the big news, the Trump verdict in the E. Jean Carroll trial. Trump found guilty, sexual assault, defamation, $5 million decision. Good luck getting money out of him, though. Uh, well, I mean, he's bound by law to pay it now. He is, of course, going to appeal. Over the weekend, though, Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, met with HBCU leaders, Mayor Andre Dickens, other dignitaries, and uh, gave the commencement speech at Georgia Tech's undergraduate graduation ceremony. And I have the second half of that. Well, I say the second half, the last six minutes or so. So have a listen to that as he concludes his commencement speech at Georgia Tech from over the weekend. Third, and finally, always be open to rethinking the things that you thought you knew. That includes the path you're on. It's never too late to change course. That's what happened to me. I went to law school after college and then headed to a big firm. The job checked a lot of boxes. I had brilliant colleagues, intellectually rigorous work. Salary wasn't bad either. But my heart just wasn't in it. So. One year, 10 months, two weeks, three days, and five hours after I started, I quit. Some of my best friends while I was in law school 
were film students, and a few of them had recently started a production company. So when I left, they asked me if I wanted to join them. And I said yes. I love movies, and the idea of being part of building something from the ground up was incredibly exciting. We produced a handful of films, including one about a brooding student turned vampire. No, not Twilight. And we put on a film festival in New York. But most of the creativity was coming from the writers, the directors, the actors, not me. Collaborating with them made clear that they had gifts that I did not. And as much as I love movies, I was looking out at a world that was changing quickly. And I was feeling the pull to be a part of it. Apartheid was coming to an end in South Africa. The Soviet Union had collapsed. The people of newly independent nations were finding their own way. There were peace talks between Israel and the Palestinians, a growing ethnic conflict in the Balkans. I wanted to get involved. I just didn't know how. Then I caught a break. Someone that I'd worked for years earlier told me about an opening for an assistant job at the State Department. I applied, and I got it. Now, it was a pretty junior position. My first office, well, let me put it this way. The previous occupant of my first office was a very large safe. So that gives you some idea about what the office was like, basically a windowless closet. But from day one, I was hooked. Diplomacy felt urgent, challenging, directly connected to improving people's lives. It was a way to serve my country, which I badly wanted to do. I felt grateful every morning walking into work. I still do. I'm biased, but I think you might feel the same way. So I hope that some of you will consider putting your skills toward public service, maybe even toward making our foreign policy better for the good of Americans, for the good of people around the world. We need your help. In my case, it took a few tries, but I found my place. And I learned something important along the way. I had to be open to starting over. When things didn't turn out the way I hoped, I had to change my experience, not my expectations. Long before he was president, Jimmy Carter was a young dad with three small kids and a promising career in the Navy's nuclear submarine program. One day, he got a call that his father, Earl, who was sick with cancer, was dying. Jimmy drove from his base in New York to Plains, Georgia, the town of around 600 people where he'd grown up. Now, Earl Carter, his dad, cast a big shadow in Plains, and Jimmy had worked hard to get out from under that shadow. But there was something about reflecting on his dad's life during that visit that planted a question in Jimmy. Not only was the family peanut farm one of the town's biggest employers, but Earl was a church deacon, a leader in the Else Club. He served on the local school and hospital boards. When kids in Plains couldn't afford clothes for graduation, the teachers told Earl, and he donated them anonymously. If, the fa if a family business went under, Jimmy knew the town would go with it. Seeing the community that his dad had worked so hard to build, made Jimmy wonder whether it made sense and what it would be like if he tried something similar. After Earl died, Jimmy struggled with whether he should move his family back to Plains. And on paper, it made no sense. The family business was deep in debt, and he knew little about farming or running a business. He had a bright future ahead in the Navy, but he went back anyway. His superiors thought he was crazy. His wife, Rosalind, was so mad, she refused to talk to him, except through their kids. The first year, the farm earned $280. But Jimmy found something different in Plains, something that he'd been missing for years, that he hadn't been able to put his finger on, a sense of community. And as he and Rosalind turned the business around, 
He threw himself into local service, getting involved in the Lions Club, the Boy Scouts, the school, hospital, and library boards in his church. Then he decided to run for a state Senate seat, and the rest, as they say, is history. Class of 2023, you have a mantra here at Georgia Tech. We can do that. And it rings true for so many of our shared hopes and ambitions far beyond this campus. But I would humbly suggest, as Zarya also suggested, that the most important in we can do that is not do, but we. We can do that. Whether that we is a family, a campus, a city, a country, or the world. That's certainly true today. Think about your experience. Look around. No one gets out by doing it alone. You got out because you did it together. And I'm confident that as you reflect back on how you made it to this day, behind everything you've done and everything you're proud of, there is a we. It's the one constant in navigating all the uncertainty that you'll face, whether that's getting through the times when you don't have the answers or figuring out the principles that will anchor you in life or keeping yourself open to rethinking the things that you thought you knew. You must always, always be guided by people you love and trust. And so, esteemed graduates, don't forget, the key to navigating all uncertainty is never trying to do it alone. Find your we, and there's absolutely nothing you cannot do. Thank you, and congratulations. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking over the weekend at Georgia Tech's graduation commencement. That will wrap up today's episode of The Ron Show. You can hear it in its entirety if you'd like. RonShowATL.com. Podcast links for you as well. We've got this show on all the major podcast platforms. Blog posts and more. Again, RonShowATL.com. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. here on America One Radio. We'll see you then.